Hi, Polina. In September, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told a conference that 25% of emerging markets are in or near debt distress. Could you provide further context around why that is? It is true that there is a growing distinction between a group of emerging market countries that are in a stronger position um, and those that are likely um, to face challenges ahead. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to the first group of countries, we feel that there are uh, certain tailwinds that actually support the broader emerging market beta investment case. And those are namely the strong commodity backdrop as well as orthodox monetary policy that have both benefited many emerging market countries through the pandemic period. We've seen improvement in current account dynamics as two thirds of emerging markets are commodity exporters. And we also feel that the orthodox monetary policy has allowed many emerging market countries to be on the front foot when it comes to inflation management. <clears throat> With that said, we feel that the consecutive US Fed rate hikes have created an headwinds for select group of emerging market countries. And possibly some of those countries are facing structural impairment of their sovereign balance sheets. Um, those are the countries that we would group under the title of frontier economies. In other words, the segment of the market that includes smaller countries with high reliance on external funding. And these are the group of, this is the group of countries that we feel is likely to be in a more vulnerable position. Now, if you think about the scale of those countries, they are between, I'd say, 10 to 15% of emerging market tradable universe. Um, countries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, for example, account for almost half of the JP Morgan next-gen frontier market index. And if we look at those countries, many of sub-Saharan sub African credits haven't really fully recovered from COVID uh, with only 20% vaccination rates. Um, we have witnessed uh, close to 30 million people falling in extreme poverty over the last three years. And um, moreover, if we look at the growth patterns over the last few years, uh, you would note that net exports have detracted from growth during this time. And now consumption is under pressure given the high level of inflation. Now, to add to this, uh, the growth outlook looks uh, even more bleak with limited resources for investments and, of course, constraints on government budgets. This deterioration adds to already large structural imbalances. If you look at sub-Saharan economies as an example, um, close to two-thirds of those economies are uh, facing twin deficits with above, uh, collectively above 10 percentage points of GDP. Um, these countries have also sustained one of the fastest growing debt stock. Um, if you look at the bond issuance alone, we've seen an increase from 5 billion in 2009 to 100 billion by 2021. So far, <clears throat> this, issue, this region has received um, close to 30 billion of developmental assistance and 60 billion from IMF emergency funding. However, with the existing elevated levels of debt, um, with debt to GDP being in high double digits or in some cases already in triple digits, and gross financing needs, it seems unlikely that um, either bilateral lenders or bondholders would be prepared to lend more money into these countries without being confident that the issues I just outlined will be addressed. If there's a high likelihood that these countries will need to restructure their debt, what would the broader impact be? Well, while it's likely that we uh, will see ad hoc sovereign restructurings over the next few years, there is also a risk of a broader spillover in the region, 
that could impair regional growth prospects, as well as investor risk appetite in the segment of the market. Despite the willingness to pay and implement the correct policy mix, the COVID-19 pandemics and raw material pressure, um, combined with relatively high debt load and higher global funding rates, have put sub-Saharan economies' debt profile on their unsustainable path. Um, restructuring may be inevitable or unavoidable for some of these economies, but we think a new approach to restructuring is needed, one that makes the outcome sustainable for the debt servicing and also allows these countries to deal with the poverty and climate-related problems. The last point I would make, that if we think about the broader impact um, of, on the emerging markets from frontier economies um, facing debt restructuring challenges, I would say that uh, while in the short term it might lead to the price impairment in frontier markets, in the medium term, it could also challenge the structural allocation to investors into emerging market assets, which is why we feel that despite these countries being relatively small segment of emerging markets in the context of the quantum of debt, it's important to come up with a structural solution to this problem. And is there a way that the situation for these countries could improve? A more comprehensive approach is needed, um, which would improve the longer term prospects of these countries. I guess if you think about the likelihood of these countries avoiding restructuring altogether, um, we could see a technical improvement, for example, if the war on Ukraine um, uh, between Ukraine and Russia ends in the foreseeable future, let's say <clears throat> within the context of next year, we could see some relief on the commodity prices, which would help with inflation dynamics in those countries. However, I don't think it addresses all the structural issues that I outlined, which ultimately lead to lower growth, relatively high starting point in terms of debt stock and limited funding options given the Fed rising rates, which is why, again, we feel that um, it's a question of um, how we approach the debt reprofiling of these countries rather than can we avoid it altogether. And if we think about that um, constructive solution, we feel that um, if we were to put together a solution which is designed to bring direct investment and portfolio flows um, into these countries, as well as improve a policy mix, that will improve growth prospects going forward and put the debt on sustainable path, that type of solution um, could be instrumental and transformational for, for those economies. Um, <clears throat> this would likely to bring some new features um, to the market. Uh, some might say that they're new, but we have had parallels with, um, in, um, with Brady bond plans um, in the 80s where some of those features were already used. If we were to focus not only on the existing debt that needs to be reprofiled, <clears throat> and we feel that this could be reprofiled um, <clears throat> with the new instruments linked to <clears throat> sorry, key sustainable development goals, such as KPIs, but <clears throat> we also think we could provide additional liquidity to, the, um, to those countries through an ESG-linked new money solution that could tightly be monitored and linked to specific as strategically important projects, but yet in, give a source of new liquidity into the market. And if a broader investor pool were to be targeted, this new money solution could also all be backed by high quality collateral for additional comfort. One such example could entail tapping into international reserve assets, such as SDR or special drawing rights as a backstop for lending. 
this year, for example, sub-Saharan African countries received $20 billion in SDR out of the total pool of $660 billion. But currently, a number of developed countries do not use their share of SDR, and hence putting a case forward for SDR reallocation could be a neat solution to provide additional support for um, frontier markets. Looking back in history, as I mentioned earlier, this type of framework can be loosely compared with a Brady Bond plan that happened um, and was put in, in action in, in 1980s and helped reprofile most of commercial debt of emerging markets, which actually gave birth to emerging markets sovereign debt as an asset class. You've outlined why this is such an important area, but why should investors care about the debt profile of emerging market economies? Well, firstly, the continent is home to 1 billion people. Um, it accounts, just talking about the sub-Saharan African countries, we have close to 30% of world mineral reserves and 12% of oil reserves um, or concentrated in this region, as well as natural gas supply. In addition to the economic and humanitarian motivations, there are also environmental arguments um, for providing ESG-linked capital to sub-Saharan Africa. The region currently accounts for only a small fraction of the CO2 emissions globally, yet six um, of the 10 most climate-vulnerable countries in the world are located in sub-Saharan Africa. And at the same time, the continent is receiving less than 10% of the support that is estimated um, um, to be needed in order to fight climate change. With the financial burden of mass poverty and lack of resources, it's optimistic to expect that net zero and adhering to the Paris Club agreements will feature strongly on the priority list for policymakers. So to summarize, I would say the bottom line should be when it comes to frontier space in emerging markets, the interests of the countries, environmentalists and creditors are all aligned. We have the opportunity to act now to provide a comprehensive solution to a host of issues that will only magnify even further, if not addressed preemptively. This podcast is issued by Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.bluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended as investment, tax or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited and is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. Blue Bay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast to reflect changes after the publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but Blue Bay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined by the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchasers as defined in the the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person, published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay or one of its entities. Copyright 2022.